You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. My name is Brad, and uh, I am the executive pastor here at GCC, and I have the privilege of preaching the Word of God this morning. I'm really excited about it. I'm supposed to clarify something. Uh, Natalie, (laughs) so... One, we're not firing her. Uh, When we hired Natalie, it was very uh, clearly stated that it was an interim six-month position. She's not going anywhere. She's not leaving the church. She'll still be around. Uh, You'll still see her. Uh, I guess she got a lot of questions wondering where she was moving to. She's not going anywhere. She's just not going to be the kids' ministry director anymore, which we knew all along. So quick little clarification there. Uh, We've been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, And it is the longest recorded discourse that we have of Jesus. When Jesus is walking around and doing his ministry on earth before his death and resurrection, he taught a lot about the kingdom of God and about life uh, and how to know God. Uh, And this Sermon on the Mount is the largest, longest teaching that we have of his. And we've entitled this series Live because we believe in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is telling us, communicating to us how we should live. What does life look like as members of the kingdom of God. Uh, how, how, how do we have life that is abundant and full? And then he kind of works through different aspects and areas of life, and it shows us what it looks like to live in God's kingdom and God's world. And so today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. If you have a Bible open there, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. If you are an attentive listener and you were here last week, you'll notice that we're going to skip a few verses. Uh, we're going to skip verses 16 through 18. So Ronnie finished preaching through verse 15 last week, and I'm going to pick up in 19. There's a couple reasons for that. First reason is that uh, just as we were, or as, as I was studying the passage this week, it kind of became clear that I think verses 16 and 18 fit in the previous section about practicing your righteousness before others and for the approval of others. So Jesus talks about giving to the needy. He talks about prayer, and then he talks about fasting and how we can do these things and hope that people approve of us and our religious activity. Ronnie covered that really well last week, and so if you missed that, go listen to that sermon. It's a good one. And in verse 19, he shifts to talk about a different aspect of life. So that's the first reason we're going to skip that. The second is because I think verses 19 through 24 warrant a whole sermon in themselves. I think that in verses 19 through 24, the text that we're looking at today, Jesus addresses what I would argue is the biggest problem in the American church today. I think that what Jesus addresses in these verses is bigger than pornography. I think it's a bigger problem than abuse. I think it's a bigger problem than deconstructionism and progressive theology. I think that the the issue that Jesus is addressing in these words today is, is the largest, most prevalent, widespread issue in the American church today. But I also think that the words that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to look at today are the most ignored words of Jesus and all that he taught. And so I'm, I'm excited to preach this text today because I think that it is a text we need to hear. And also, just to be honest, I'm a little nervous because I think these words of Jesus can oftentimes go in one ear, out the other, over our heads. We hear them and we think, no, not me. I'm actually good in this area of life. Martin Luther says this, whenever the gospel is taught, and people seek to live according to it, there are two terrible plagues that always rise. False preachers who corrupt the teaching 
and then sir greed who obstructs right living. So Martin Luther said that whenever the gospel is taught and people strive to live rightly according to it, two plagues, one, false teaching, and the second is greed. Greed corrupting right living. And so today, we're going to talk about this sir greed, what I believe is the most prevalent issue in the American church, but is often taken uh, the least seriously. As we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, we've covered topics like lust and anger and hatred. We've covered things like divorce uh, and retaliation and keeping oaths and prayer. And I think when we, we hear these things, we are convicted. We're convicted in the areas of lust and anger and retaliation and in keeping our word and being honest and those kinds of things. And then when we get to Jesus' words on money, and it's almost like all of a sudden the conviction goes away. We think that this is actually an area where these words don't apply to us. Uh, we've, we have this area under control. And I think this only shows how deeply embedded the idols are in our hearts that actually lead to a love of money, what Jesus is talking about. I think the, the idols in our heart that cause us to be devoted to money in the way that we are are so, so deeply embedded in us that they almost feel like they're just a part of us and not something foreign to us. Almost like, uh, this is a gross analogy, but almost like a parasite that is so attached to its host that the host has no idea it's there. All the while, the parasite is slowly sucking the life out of the host. I think that's what, in a lot of ways, greed is to Christians in America and in the Western world. And I believe that if we took Jesus' words seriously, if we actually listened to his words today and applied them to our lives, it would radically transform all aspects of our life it would radically transform the health of our church and the church uh, around the world. And it would radically transform the effectiveness of our witness to the gospel in the world around us. And so with that in mind, I'm going to read verses 19 through 24. I'll open us up in a word of prayer, and then we'll start working through this passage. So follow along with me, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Uh, Jesus, we need your help. Uh, we, we come to your word not simply for good advice. We come to your word for life. We come to your word for good news. We come to your word, and we come to you for, um, for you to breathe new life into us and transform us from the inside out. And so, God, I pray that that's what happens this morning. Uh, Jesus, I need your help in preaching this message. I need your help in communicating clearly. Um, I need your help in making you the hero of this sermon and nothing else. Uh, we all need your help, Jesus, in opening our hearts to hear and receive your words for us today. And Jesus, we need your help um, as we seek to apply these words to our lives and actually make changes because of them. So God, we, we ask for your help. We ask that your spirit would be moving and working in every aspect of the service this morning. Uh, and that you would be transforming each and every one of us more into the image of, of you, Jesus. Because in his name, amen. The main point this morning that I hope you remember is this. Devotion is costly. Devotion is costly. And 
Today, in this text, Jesus is going to give us two options for our devotion, God or money. And both, if we devote ourselves to one, both is a costly devotion. It's a costly decision. These are the kind of statements that I don't think we take very seriously of Jesus when he gives us an either and, or, an either or and we assume it's a both and. We hear these things where Jesus says you cannot serve God and money, and we think there's a third option, that there's some way around it or some way we can actually get the best of both worlds, but this isn't the case. Jesus gives us an either or, not a both and. One pastor says, uh, when you choose to invest in one thing, you are making an intentional decision not to invest in something else. And that is true when it comes to God and money. It's an either or, not a both and. You cannot be in two places at once. You cannot have the best of both worlds. It's one or the other you must choose. And both choices will cost you. As we're going to see, that if you choose God, ultimately it is going to cost you material possessions. It will cost you money uh, and, and things and everything that we like to accumulate and hoard in this world. But if you choose money, it will cost you God himself. And so the goal for this morning, as we work through this text, is to count the cost, to analyze both investments, and to choose which one we will devote ourselves to, to choose which price we are willing to pay for our devotion. So let's start with verses 19 through 21. I'll read them again. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus gives two options of treasures. There's two treasures on the table we can choose from. One is earthly and temporal. The other is heavenly and eternal. These earthly treasures, he says, can be destroyed or stolen. So they're material things. Clothing, money, uh, cars, houses, the things that we have that we can have one day and be gone the next. These are risky things to treasure. These are risky things to store up because, like I said, it could, you could have it today and it could quite literally be gone tomorrow. Uh, my wife and I are watching this show about um, a uh, murder trial in like the early 2000s and the, the events take place in like 2007, 2008. And there was a scene just in the episode we were watching last night. The wife uh, works for a large company and the bubble bursts in 2008 and the stock plummets. And she's sitting at, at dinner with her husband and she's just in a, a, an absolute wreck and crying and upset. Because, and she says things like, it's all worthless. It was all pointless. All the hours spent working and slaving away and the trips and the travel and the, the hours spent working for retirement and for our dreams and for all these things we had put our hope in, gone in the blink of an eye. With the drop of the stock, the stock market, it's all gone. And life is over. No more dreams. No more hopes. No more future because the retirement is gone. So earthly treasures, though attractive, are risky because they can easily be destroyed and taken away. They're also risky because they don't last into eternity. You cannot take your earthly possessions with you when you die. Job says, naked I come from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. More modern way of thinking about it is that you've probably never seen a hearse towing a U-Haul, right? You cannot take your earthly possessions with you when you go. So Jesus says your earthly treasures are a risky investment. They don't last. 
On the other hand, there are heavenly treasures. There's things that last into eternity. There's things that can be stored in heaven. And what are these? Well, the only thing from this earth that lasts into eternity is the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God? Made up of people. So I believe that what Jesus is talking about here, that these heavenly treasures are people. I think what Jesus is talking about is instead of leveraging your resources to build your own personal kingdom that only lasts in this life, leverage your resources to build God's eternal kingdom that lasts into the next life. You all are probably familiar with the classic film Schindler's List. It would not be a GCC sermon if we did not reference the movie. And so here is the movie reference for this morning. Schindler's List, it's an incredible movie uh, about a man, Oscar Schindler, who, uh, he's a German man, and he essentially uses his resources to purchase Jews to work in his factory so that they aren't sent off to be killed in concentration camps. And throughout the course of, of this man's life and his endeavor to do this, he saves over 1,100 Jewish people's lives from the concentration camps by purchasing them. And he sells his possessions, and he uses his money. He leverages all of his resources to rescue over 1,000 people from certain death. And in the, uh, there's a scene in the film towards the end where he's walking, uh, Oscar Schindler is walking through the crowds of Jews that he has rescued. And one of them says, uh, he says this, there will be generations because of what you did, what you did. In other words, that for generations beyond your death, your life and death, what you did here today will have an effect. His decision to leverage his resources to rescue Jewish people from concentration camps had an effect that lasted generations, far beyond his life. In that same scene, Schindler looks, Oscar Schindler looks at his car and he breaks down in tears and he says, if I would have sold my car, that would have been 10 more lives. And he looks at the gold pin attached to his jacket and he says, if I would have sold this pin, that would have been one more life. He didn't see his possessions as things to own to build his own kingdom and advance his own life, but rather as a means to rescue the lives of others. And I believe this is similar to the call that we have as Christians in regard to our money and possessions. How can we leverage our resources to grow God's kingdom and not our own? Now, there's differences, and there's really important differences. First of all, Oscar Schindler is riddled with guilt because he, he couldn't do enough. He couldn't save more. And we don't bear that same kind of burden. You see, as, as Christians, we can't purchase someone's salvation. The, the, the burden of salvation is not on us to bear. The only thing that can purchase salvation for people is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on a cross. And the only thing that can restore and regenerate hearts is God's spirit working in people's lives. No amount of money, gifts, donations, or effort on our part has anything to do with what God does in the lives and hearts of others. The other difference is the glory. Oscar Schindler is praised for what he's done. When we leverage our resources to build God's kingdom and not our own, it's not for our glory, it's for God's. That we, we, we point the attention away from, our own, away from ourselves and towards God. Now, it's important to keep in mind that this work of advancing the gospel, this work of, of the gospel going to the ends of the earth and, and bringing people into the kingdom of God, it takes place in the context of the local church. God's mission and plan to make his glory known among all, the earth, uh, among all the earth is through the local church, through churches preaching the gospel and, and telling people the good news of Jesus and those churches growing and planting more churches around the world. That's how God is going to make his glory known among the world. 
And in the world that God has created, resources are required for that mission. Resources are required to accomplish that goal. And so churches need resources. Now, as, as a pastor of a church, I, I would say, and we should say, that we trust in God to provide for us. That we trust in God to provide, for, provide our needs as a church. And absolutely, 100%, he will. But God has always, almost exclusively, provided for the mission of local churches through the generosity of saints. God doesn't plant a magic money tree on church property that just keeps like providing for the mission of the church. He provides for the, re- the resources churches need through the generosity of the saints. Always has, and I believe he always will into the new heavens and the new earth. I've, I've heard it said that there's enough money that's given and donated that would, that, to solve world hunger, that, that we have enough money to solve the problem of people's starving around the world. It's not a money issue. It's a distribution issue. The problem is actually getting that food that we can provide through the finances that are given to the people who need it. And I would say in a similar way, there is enough money in the local church, in the church, to fully fund every mission or every, every local church's mission in this world. It's not a money issue. It's a generosity issue. Now, keep in mind, this is more than just a decision of what to do with your money. Jesus says it's a reflection of your heart. It says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, what you treasure exposes your heart. So if you say you're devoted to God and his kingdom, but then your finances show that you're more devoted to yourself and your own kingdom, then your heart really isn't for God and his kingdom. So our, our finances, what we treasure, what we value, what we invest in exposes the condition and state of our heart. Devotion is costly. And in this case, Jesus said it costs your heart. What you give your resources towards, what you give your devotion towards, whatever you, you are devoted to, that's where your heart is at. And so is your heart for your kingdom or God's? Let's move on to the next section, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If in the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Uh, This is a really interesting (laughs) section of scripture. It's an interesting analogy, and it seems to have nothing to do with money, but then it's put in between two sections that are very clearly about money and possessions and materialism. So let's try to unpack this and understand what it's doing here. We'll unpack the analogy a little bit and then a couple of the words in here. So first, the analogy. What Jesus is saying is that the idea that the eye is the lamp of the body is that your entire body is controlled in a sense dictated by the health of one small organ, your eye. Think of your eye like a window and the rest of your body like a room. If the window is clear and can let light in, then the rest of that room is illuminated and there's, there's light spread throughout it. But if that window is dark and cloudy and the, the light can't get through the window, if that light is restricted, then there's darkness in the room. So our eyes are like that. What Jesus is saying is that if your eye is clear, if you see the world rightly, if you have a right perspective on things that actually will be good for the rest of your body, for the rest of your life, they will bring light and life to you through how you view and see the world. But on the contrary, If our vision is dark, if it's clouded, 
If we don't see rightly, if we don't have a right perspective, then the rest of our life and how we live it becomes distorted. Uh, We're familiar with this concept. If you ever try to like walk around your house at night, (laughs) early in the morning or late at night when it's dark, and you like stub your toe on things or run into the wall, or maybe you kick the stupid dump truck toy and it starts singing a song, wakes everyone up in the house. I've heard of someone doing that. Um, when we can't see rightly, the rest of our body is out of whack, and, and we don't know where we're going. We run into things. The rest of our life is, is distorted and changed because of our vision. So that's the, the idea that Jesus is getting at here. Now, what about some words here? What kind of good or bad eye do we need to have in order to affect the rest of our body? Jesus says, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. This, you, you might have a translation where that says, if your eye is good. Uh, the Greek word here is used elsewhere in the New Testament to talk about gener- generosity, or, or is translated generous. So I think Jesus is tapping into the connotation of this word that has to do with generosity and, and financial generosity to talk about a, a healthy or good eye. If you see the world through generous eyes, then there will be light for your whole body. And then in contrast, he says, if your eye is bad, it's a good, great translation of the word. They're bad, sometimes evil. In financial context, this, this word can be translated as stingy or greedy. So the idea is if you have a stingy eye, a greedy eye, then there will be darkness in the rest of your body. So in other words, if you look at the world through stingy eyes, if you see the world through, through greed, if you are always gripping tightly to your possessions, really, really slow to release that grip and let some of them go. If you take care of number one first, that's me all the time, and, and when you do maybe give some to someone else, it's a meager gift and it doesn't really hurt that much, then your whole body will be full of darkness. All of life will be affected by greedy eyes. Now, unfortunately, these are the eyes that we are born with. The stingy, greedy eyes that are always looking for more to keep and hoard and take for ourselves are the eyes that we were born with because we're born into sin. When God created everything, he created Adam and Eve, and he, was a, he is a good God who gave Adam and Eve everything they would ever need. They, they didn't have to take anything for themselves because God provided in grace to, him every, to them everything. But then when presented with the opportunity to take for themselves, they happily do so. They say, we actually, they say, we don't actually need God what you have provided for us. We're going to take what we think we need for ourselves. And since that moment, every single human is born into sin, born with stingy eyes, born thinking about what can I take and keep and save and store up for me and myself. Think about one of the first words that kids learn, the word mine, Right? That is mine. Like uh, the, uh, find, the seagulls and Finding Nemo. There's mine, 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 mine. That's kids, right? Just mine. Everything is mine, 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 mine. And we grow up and we stop saying it, and yet our hearts still cry out, mine, 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 because we see everything in our world for ourselves. What can we take? What can I hoard? What can I keep? What will propel me? What will protect me? What will promote me and my life? These stingy eyes, Jesus says, will destroy your life. And this shouldn't be that much of a surprise. Think of the marriages ruined by greed, the families that fall apart 
because of selfishness and stinginess. Think of how societies, cities, neighborhoods, nations have been destroyed because of greed. Studies have shown that suicide rates rise and fall with the economic cycle in the United States. So when our country goes through an economic recession, suicide, suicide rates rise. And when our country goes through an economic expansion, suicide, rights, suicide, suicide rates fall. Because if I have enough for myself, life is good. But if I don't have enough, or if I lose what I have, life all of a sudden isn't worth living. Now, on the other hand, a generous eye will bring light and life. Now, quick note, you can't change your eyes. The, 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 we're born with stingy, greedy eyes, and that's what we are stuck with. And we cannot change that on our own unless someone else comes in and changes it for us. You can't go buy a set of prescription glasses that change like the vision of your eyes from greedy to generous. There's no contact lens that will fix this. What you need is surgery. You need someone to actually come in and change your eyes. And this is what Jesus does. God has entered into our world in the person of Jesus. He has taken on human flesh, and he saw the world perfectly all the time through perfectly generous eyes. And then through his death on the cross, he has taken our stingy, greedy eyes on himself, and he has paid the penalty for them. And then he gives to us new eyes, a new heart, a new way of living, a new identity, perfectly clean, perfectly righteous, not because of anything we have done, but because of what he did on our behalf. And so through Jesus and only Jesus can our eyes actually change from the greedy ones to generous ones, only because of the gospel. The gospel doesn't just give us these new eyes. The gospel actually also defines what generosity is for us. That generous generosity it's like one of those awesome Christian buzzwords that we like to throw around in churches and say a lot. What does it actually mean? What does it actually mean to be generous? And I think to answer that question, we look to the most generous act in human history, which is what Jesus did on our behalf on the cross. See, God is a generous God. He's always been a generous God who gives and gives and gives, not ever getting or expecting anything in return, but gives out of his grace and one-way love giving fully and freely through Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. And even now today, we still receive an abundance from a generous God. So what do we learn from generosity about the greatest act of generosity in human history, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? First of all, we learn that generosity is a one-way street. The word grace means it's a free gift. Rick often defines it as one-way love. Grace is not earned, it's not deserved, it's given freely. Jesus wasn't generous in giving his life for us because he knew that we would steward it well. Jesus wasn't generous in giving his life for us because we had first been generous to him. Jesus wasn't generous in giving his life to us because we somehow proved that we deserve his generosity. No, Jesus gives his generosity and grace and love to us while we were still sinners. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, after the soldiers just put the nails through his hands and feet and hoisted him up, hoisted him up there and are mocking him, he looks out and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we're not that different from the soldiers. While we didn't drive the nails physically into the hands and feet of Jesus, it's our sin that held him on the cross. 
And while Jesus is held on the cross because of our sin, he looks out and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And so it is not because of something we did that we coerced or manipulated or, or motivated Jesus to get up on that cross and die for us. He did it freely, freely, completely out of grace and love and generosity. But oftentimes our generosity is conditional. We will give when the person we want to give to has proven they will be trustworthy with our gift. We will give after first being given to. We will give when we think someone has earned our generosity. We can be very thankful that God's generosity does not work like this, or none of us would receive any of it. The second thing is that generosity, the second thing we learn from the gospel about generosity is that generosity is costly. When Jesus gave up his life, he did not give 10% of it. Jesus did not give enough to say that he gave, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Jesus gave all of his life a complete and total sacrifice. Nothing held back, but everything laid out there on the cross for you and for me. I think the thing that we miss in generosity is that it is sacrificial. It's costly. Sacrificial giving is when your giving affects your living. Generosity hurts. You don't think Jesus was in pain when he was being generous. It, it hurt. It was costly. There was a price that had to be paid. Generosity has little to do with the number of zeros on your gift and a lot more to do with the sacrificial posture of your heart. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is sitting with his disciples outside the treasury of the temple. And he's watching as, as rich people are coming and giving huge gifts to the temple, making huge gifts, abundant gifts into the offering box. And then he sees a widow come. And the widow gives what would be the equivalent to us of like a penny, basically nothing. And he says this to his disciples in Mark chapter 12, verses 43 and 44. Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus commends the widow's offering not because of how large it was, not because of, of, of the, the size of the offering, objectively speaking, but because of her sacrifice in giving the offering. And so I think a good question for us to ask ourselves when we think about our own generosity is, if I didn't give this amount of money, how would my life be different? If I, if I didn't give this amount, what could I do with that? What would my quality of life be like? And if the answer to that question is that life actually wouldn't look that different, there's nothing more you could do with the money that you give. Quality of life wouldn't go up that, that much or at all. And I would suggest that that might not be as generous as you might think. Generosity is costly. It hurts. There's a sacrifice. And we know that because that's how Jesus gave generously us. Remember, devotion is costly. Devotion to money will give you a stingy and greedy eye that inevitably will cost you your whole body, your whole life. Devotion to a generous God gives you a generous eye that costs you material possessions that you will inevitably end up being generous with. All right, let's look at this last section. Verse 24. 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Finally, Jesus just says it, gets to the crux of the issue. It's God or money. It's not both and, it's either or. You can either be devoted to God or you can be devoted to money. And your devotion to one is at the expense of the other. Don't miss the language Jesus is using here. Your money doesn't serve you. You serve it. It is your master. You do not master it. And money rules us. We serve it because of what we think it will provide for us. So I think at the end of the day, we don't have a money problem. We have an idolatry problem. And money just serves to satisfy the idols that we have in our hearts. Tim Keller has four root idols. Uh, we did a series, GCC did a series on these idols a while ago. I want to run, run through them really quickly and see how money can be a way we can strive for these things in our life. So the four idols are power, control, comfort, and approval. So power. We desire to be powerful. We desire to be influential. We desire to people to see us as someone or something. We want to be seen as superior. We want to be respected. We want to, be, we want to have influence in our lives, in our neighborhood, in our community, in our company. And oftentimes, money is a way of getting the power we desire. Think about the most powerful people in our society today. They also happen to be the richest. So we want power, we idolize power, and we think money will get us that power, and so we serve money. Next is control. We want to be in control of our lives. We want security. We want to know the future. We want the future to be, be all under control and to go exactly how we plan it to go. We don't want anything bad to happen to us. And so if we just have enough money, if our savings account can just be big enough, if the retirement account can just be big enough, if, if we can have the security blanket of what money can provide around us, then we can be in control. Or when something happens that's out of our control, it won't affect us that bad. Comfort. We want to be happy. We want to feel good. We want to be comfortable in life. We want pleasure. We want good things, nice things. And of course, obviously, money can provide these. A nice house, a nice car, a nice clothes, a nice boat, whatever, you, whatever it is that would make you comfortable, that you would enjoy to have, money can provide. And lastly, approval. If I would just live in this neighborhood, then I would be approved of by my community. If I could just have this size of a house, if I could just have, have this size of a bank account, if I could, whatever it is, if I could just get to this, that money will get me there, then I will be approved of. Then people will like me. They will be interested in me. They will want to come to my house parties. They will want to be a part of my uh, events. They will want to take interest in me if I just have enough money. We think that money will provide these things, but the, large, the, the major problem here is that money makes empty promises. We don't know if it's actually true or not, but legend says that uh, John Rockefeller was asked how much money will make a man happy, and his response was just one more dollar. It's always just one more dollar. A little bit more money will get me more power. A little bit more money will give me more comfort. A little bit more control, approval, 
And it's always just a little bit more. Never satisfied. So we could serve money and chase our tails, looking for power, control, comfort, and approval all of our lives. Or we could at least explore the other option, which would be serving God. A God who gave up power and became a man to have his diapers changed by his creation, to be spit on and mocked by the people that he made, to be hung on a cross that he created, from a, a, the wood from a tree that, that he made with his words. Jesus gave up power in heaven, authority of God to become a man and die on your behalf. A God who gave up control. Jesus is mocked in his last hours saying, if you really are who you say you are, call down legions of angels to get you off the cross and and save the day, which Jesus could have done. But he gave up control of his situation to be arrested, betrayed, beaten, mocked, killed on a cross, having the ability to stop it all immediately and choosing not to. The God who gave up comfort. Nothing about Jesus' life was comfortable. We know that he didn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't have a home. He relied on the generosity and hospitality of others to provide a space for him to live. The crowds were constantly pressing in on him. He'd have a moment to pray early in the morning, and then by the time it got light, there were people around him just wanting things from him. The cross isn't a comfortable way to die having to press against the nails in his hands and feet just to take a breath, scraping his beaten back on the the rough wood of the cross, thorns in his head. That's not comfortable. Jesus gave up comfort. And he's a God who gave up approval. Jesus was rejected in his hometown, driven out, thought to be crazy by his own mother and brothers, rejected by religious leaders, rejected by foreigners, rejected by his people, and ultimately betrayed and rejected by his closest friends. In the last hour of Jesus' life, in the last moments, the only people that were standing in the crowds that were for him was one disciple out of the 12 and his mom. And the ultimate giving up of approval is when God the Father turns his face away from God the Son, and he experiences the fullness of the wrath of God in paying for the sins of others. See, devotion is costly. It cost Jesus everything to be devoted to you. Jesus' love for you is so great. His commitment to you is so great that he gave up everything. Power, control, comfort, approval, his life. He gave it all up in his devotion to you so that you can have all the power, control, comfort, and approval you would ever need. Because when you come to Jesus in faith, you are given a new identity. You are are clothed in his righteousness. You are one with him, which means that, think about that. You're one with Jesus. That means that right now, when he's seated in the heavenly places with rule and authority over all of creation, you sit with him. It means that while he is sovereignly in control of all things that happen in this world, it also means he's sovereignly in control of all things that happen in your life. You don't have to long for control that money can provide because the God of the universe holds you in his arms. All the, the comfort and pleasure and happiness and joy you could ever want and desire is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. 
And there's nothing you could ever do to earn God's disapproval of you. Right now, in Christ, where you sit, God does not see you as stingy or greedy. He does not see you as sinful or dirty. He does not see you as impure or unrighteous. He sees you as holy, pure, righteous because of Jesus. And so you don't have to pay for approval. Jesus paid everything, and you're completely, totally approved of. Jesus' devotion to us cost him everything. And now what he's calling each of us to do is be devoted to him no matter the cost. The gospel is the only thing that will ultimately motivate true generosity in us. There's no amount of guilt or a well-crafted argument or sermon. There's no amount of heartfelt pleas or statistics about money in the church that can motivate generosity in people. The only thing that will motivate generosity in God's people is God's generosity towards them in Jesus. And so it is not until we grasp the generosity of Jesus and the gospel towards us that we can actually start being generous towards one another. But when we do grasp that, when that generosity takes hold of our heart, it does motivate us to be generous. And we have the spirit within us to empower us to do the same. So I want to conclude with this verse. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. The churches of Macedonia had received the grace of God, and it gave them an abundance of joy. So much so that they devoted themselves to God, and then that devotion ultimately led to a devotion to one another. And so much so that they gave generously out of their poverty. In fact, they begged Paul to let them give for the relief of the saints. Paul is using them as an example and now saying to the church in Corinth, as you excel, as you grow, you're growing in faith and speech and knowledge and earnestness. In love, it's time to grow in generosity. See that you also excel in this act of grace. I believe our church family is growing in faith and knowledge and speech and earnestness and love, and it is so encouraging to see. But GCC, I believe that now is the time for us as a church to grow in this act of grace as well, to grow in generosity. So for Some, the response to this sermon might be making immediate changes to the way you think about finances and generosity. And I would say if the Spirit is convicting you in that way, then I would encourage you to listen to that conviction. But for all of us, I believe that the response to this text is actually quite simple. Start talking about money. 
Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, says that in those 40 years of ministry, he has yet to hear someone confess greed to him. He's heard the confession of any sin you can think of under the sun, and not one person has come to him and confessed their sin of greed. That is not a record that the pastors at GCC are looking to break. (laughs) And so my challenge and encouragement for us is to start taking Jesus' words seriously and confess our guilt, or, or confess our greed to ask one another to help us make a budget. We are really quick to ask for accountability when it comes to uh, lust and pornography or drinking or overeating or our anger. What if we ask for help and accountability and generosity? What if we let people into this part of our lives that we're often so resistant to let people into? And here's the thing. As Christians, we can do this in a way no one else can because there is no amount of money you have in your bank account that can earn your salvation from God or change who you are in him. There's no amount of greed or generosity that can increase or decrease God's love for you. You are hidden in him and his righteousness, and so we have the freedom to talk about things that are uncomfortable to talk about, including money. So I would love to see our church grow in this grace of giving, but do so together as we have conversations about what it looks like to steward what God has given us with generosity. I know and I'm convinced that in this room in our church family, there are many who desire to be devoted to God, but this devotion is costly. And so I hope that we can start counting this cost together as a church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your generosity to us. Thank you that you, Jesus, gave everything sacrificially so that we could have everything. Nothing we've done to earn or deserve your love and approval of us, you give it freely. Help us to respond to that generosity with generosity of our own. In Jesus' name, amen.